listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hello, the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? G'day and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Well, the other day I had uh, the good fortune of talking to none other than Dr. Nam Jack Warhoff. Now, he's more commonly known as Dr. Jack. Now, Dr. Jack uh, is an amazing human being who has had a wildly colourful life um, and he has many accolades um, but more importantly, he's just done a lot to help a lot of people on a lot of different levels, but um, has has specifically been there for um, alcoholics and drug addicts. And, uh, you know, he, his accolades, some of them, or one of them is he was the medical director of the Victorian Doctors' Health Program. And I mean, there, there is, there's a lot and he talks about it later on in the chat, but He's done amazing things for community and for other doctors who have suffered um, in these areas. Uh, he's really shone a light on an area that has, well, in the past, been you know a taboo topic and, and a dark dark area, uh, which is just a fantastic thing because you know the stigma attached to addiction and 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 alcoholism and you know it kills a lot of people and I'm, I'm no doubt if you're listening to this you know someone or have had a family member or you know it's been affected by it in some way so the more we can i think bring these things to light um and and take away some of the stigmas that are attached to them it's just a great thing and dr jack has been on the forefront of really of really doing that and and knows first and foremostly because of his own journey through it. So uh, I hope you enjoy my uh, your listen to Dr. Jack and my conversation as much as I enjoyed talking to him and meeting him. Um, and, and, and a real big shout out to three friends, you know who you are, who helped instigate and uh, reached out to Dr. Jack for me. Um, so yeah. Uh, I was going for a surf the other day. I bumped into a friend of mine just haphazardly and I was having a whinge to her about my hip. I've had this hip thing going on. And it's not terrible, but just dull. You know, lower right hip, just like... And I was a bit resigned to like, fuck, it's old age. You know, I'm just... That's what happens. But I was like, no. Or maybe I'm, you know, I just get... I can get pathetic about these things and say maybe i'm dying you know starting in the hip or uh <laughs> you know or my other head other side of my head goes my other head uh says um you can fix this there's got to be a way anyway i bumped into Kristen and she i was telling her and she was like ah it sounds to me more like your hip flexor which is on the front half of the same side and she showed me an exercise on the spot she said start doing this and see if that helps last two mornings i've woken up and just been you know it's still slightly there of course but um it's given me hope that that's definitely the zone and it was the uh, you know when you think it's there but it's and so you're stretching that you're doing everything you can for that area but it's the wrong area the sneaky body anyway she's told me to go and see um tom allen and i had an appointment with tom today and it was fantastic so if you're in the surf coast area and you're looking for a great osteo there's a shout out thanks heaps tom um and and I was driving to the beach this morning. Here's a little uh, little thing, wacky observation, life observation. And what do you call a group of bike riders? A peloton. A peloton. French word for a group of bike riders, I think, is peloton. Um, and and they were all pulled over. There's heaps of bike riders around at the moment, and they and they were pulled over, and they were all just perfectly staggered along the side of the road, just pissing. Top of Bell's Boulevard, bikes cocked out to the right, legs out to the left, just all 20 of the peloton. It must have been in an organized group piss. And it was like, I couldn't stop laughing because I just looked like fucking horses. I was just like, just going for it. But then I was like, well, of course, how else are they going to do it? These guys are spending hours, days, lives on bikes. You know, and you can't just be like, "Eh, I need a piss. Everyone wait. It's got to be obviously a unified affair, and that's what it was. I'd never seen it before, and I couldn't stop laughing. Um, and that's just because uh, I'm childish, and that's 
That's that's okay too, because it's pretty fucking funny. Anyway, uh, I hope you're well wherever you are in the world. I hope you enjoy my chat with Dr. Jack, and I'll see you on the other side. Okay, adios. You think this is, is interesting? Wow, wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. Yeah. And how was that for an experience? Uh, it was good. Uh, uh, I didn't star, but I managed to succeed each year. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of probably those six years were probably some of the most uh, uh, colourful in my life in terms of my behaviours and my activities and... You know, I was frequently uh, uh, up to no good, so to speak, at a social level. And so this was this is a d- different tone to through high school. Yes, yeah. So you sort of found uh, that oh, there's this other side to life. Yeah, a bit of a player. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a player. Yeah. Um, and did you were you aware though that that side of life was happening when you're in high school? And you, or was it like Alice in Wonderland and then when you got to uni, there it was? There, that's the latter. Yeah. yeah. Very much so, yeah. High school, I was a straight student. Yeah. At university, it was something else. It was a different world. Yeah. And, and ru- what year, do you remember roughly, was that? Probably second and third year university is when I started to, you know, spread my wings and do things that, uh, uh, well, you know... Probably I shouldn't have in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> it almost is like a rite of passage in Australian culture. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Like if I think about my own, is the word transgressions? Yeah. Maybe. Um, from, uh, you know, when I was younger, it was almost like it might have been just in my head, but I felt like it was almost revered a little bit, like the carry on, you know, yes. people like even from on a family level. Um, like my old man, I don't want to throw you under the bus, but he would, you know, embracing of the drinking culture. And my family was a drinking family. I think we've got Irish blood and, you know, everything was hinged. And, I, and then when I became part of that, it felt like, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it was different for me because my family home, uh, alcohol uh, didn't play a very large part. I mean, it was there. Uh, my my father would have a glass of whiskey when he came home from work each night, but never more than one. Uh, it was very only on ceremonial occasions that we drink with meals. My mum didn't drink because she didn't like it, so it was not a drinking culture. Yeah, but not a wowser culture either. Yeah, but when I got to university, the way I took to it was something else again. You turned it into a bit of a wowser culture. No, no, I turned my own uh, behaviour into a heavily, you know, binge drinking. Yeah. Pattern and uh, which you know was fun at the time, yeah, but didn't serve me well in the longer term. And um, and so your grades were probably suffering a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. I did pass, but only by the skin of my teeth. Right. And did you have some teachers shepherding you because they they knew how that you? No, it was uh, something I I think that the my my, my colleagues looked after me, but not some, not the teaching staff. They wouldn't have been aware of my behaviours. Right. And it was, um, sorry, the year I meant was is it like in the, what what uh, decade were we in? When in the 60s. In the 60s. Early oh, wow, awesome. That's when I graduated yep. in 61. So the war was just kicking off in Vietnam. Was there a bit of a movement there? Did it influence you? Yeah, they, by the time the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, as when the but but that probably didn't influence me. I was, um, I never, I was the wrong age for the draft. I never had to worry about that. Yeah, uh, it wasn't a, a an issue that affected me in a personal sense. But I was involved in the protest movement because I felt right from the start that it was you know a wrong thing for us to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, so you could see it for what it was. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, from very early on. Yeah. yeah. And how, how do you, just on a side note, how do you feel now when you hear of like prime ministers and people in parliament talking about maybe banning protesting? I think that's terrible. I think, isn't it one of the things that uh, democracy is all about? Is Built the, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you graduated from school by the skin of your teeth. 
from university. From university. Yeah. And but this gave you um, a, you're a doctor. Yes. Was that a, was that a good feeling to have that? In Absolutely. Front? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And did you specialise in? Uh, not initially. Yeah. But uh, after uh, four years of doing other things, uh, I decided to become an anaesthetist and uh, embarked on uh, a three-year training period and eventually uh, got my qualifications in anaesthesia in 1968. So now I'm just going to put the brakes on quickly just so I make sure I'm clear on what that is. That's when I'm going to have cataract surgery and I'm going to be knocked out. This is what happened to me. Yeah. And you, as an anaesthetist, yeah. decide how much knockout drug to give a person That's right. depending on their weight. Or well, depending on a whole range, a whole of, range things. of things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so and, and there's a different formula for every different... Of course, yeah. yeah. Depends on the patient and it depends on the procedure they're undergoing. I mean, right, yeah. an, an anaesthetic for open heart surgery is going to be very different to... This, uh, an anaesthetic for, um, you know, uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, appendicectomy or a hand yeah. or a cataract. Yeah, and you don't want someone waking up halfway through. You certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. Has it ever happened? Uh, it's certainly uh, described in the literature. I hope that it's never happened to me, but... Uh, uh, that would be horrible. <laughs> mm. um, okay, so then you specialised in... Uh, an, an anesthesia. Anesthesia. Yeah. And um, and so then did you have to go out into the workforce and apply for jobs? How did that look like? Uh, I spent two years as a staff anaesthetist uh, in uh, 1969 and 1970. And then in 1971 I went out into private practice, but I was also on the senior staff of a number of hospitals. And over the years I, I, I worked at uh, Box Hill Hospital. I was there for nearly 30 years. Mercy Maternity Hospital, uh, William Angles Hospital and Werribee and District Hospital. They were the four main hospitals that I spent a lot of time at. Right. And um, I believe, so not long after, get to, to stop me if I'm wrong, you spent some time in Antarctica? Yes, that was in that four-year period. Remember, I, I graduated in 1961. Yeah. In 1962 and 63, I was a junior resident and a senior resident. Yeah. Uh, in Launceston and in Melbourne, respectively. In 1964, I went down to the Antarctic for a year. And did did that uh, come out of the blue or did you know that that was going to be like follow-on from a Launceston? No, no, no. It was a decision I made on the basis that I knew that in, by the time I reached my late 20s, that I'd want to be settling down in a career and also in my personal life. And if there were ever I was going to do anything, you know, adventurous or a little bit different, that was the time. So it was the sort of, it was the interval between uh, my graduation as a doctor and embarking on a specialty. And it was to have a bit of fun doing something a little bit adventurous. So when you left to go down there, did you leave from... Um from Tasmania or did you leave from... We left from, from Fremantle. Oh, wow. In the Nella Dan. What an amazing... Did you hit some rough seas going down we there? We certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> it gets pretty rough there in the roaring 40s. Yeah. Did you feel fear for your life? No, no, but uh, you get fairly nauseated. Yeah. There's just the little icebreaker bobs around like a cork in those oceans. Yeah. And so when uh, it's really, I struggle to look, when I look at Antarctica on a map, I can never quite tell, you know, because it sits right at the bottom. It, it, there's no north, south, it's, is there or is it? Well, just, there is, but it's, it, it's harder to work out. Yeah. 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 And so the base that you're at, was that closer to? Mawson. I was at Mawson, which is on the coast. Yeah. All the Australian bases are on the coast. In fact, most bases of all countries on the coast. There are some inland bases. But I went to Mawson, uh, which is south of the Indian Ocean. And when you first saw Antarctica, did it, was it... Um... Oh, that was uh, amazing. I remember one, you know, we'd been tossing around in uh, pretty rough seas. I remember one morning somebody yelled out, uh, come out and deck and have a look, and it was calm. And... Uh, 
uh, I looked at the horizon and there was this big strip of white ice and mountains and it was the Antarctic coastline and it was really quite uh, awe-inspiring to see that. Oh, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. And then you, you went on to spend a year down there. It was a year down there, yes. And so what were you... Did you have a specific role? Yes, uh, I was the medical officer, so I had to look after people's health issues, Yeah. Uh, of which there weren't many. I mean, that was probably the easy part because there are 25 healthy young men in those days, small men, and uh, they have to be pretty fit to... Yeah pass the selection criteria so you, you need to have a doctor there just in case so the rest of the time uh, I was involved in uh, physiology research and that's what I did and so what does that look like well I was doing experiments into the acclimatization for cold yeah all right and uh, I had four subjects and I would subject them to cold stress and take measurements uh, physiological readings uh, such as temperature, pulse, blood pressure, blood gases and so on to determine whether indeed they did acclimatise to cold and if so, how long it took. And the experiments seem to support acclimatisation that it actually does take place at a physiological level. Now, while we're here, do you, do you know of a guy today called Wim Hof? Who? Wim Hof. No. So he, he's this guy, I'll, I'll give you, he, and he's from, um, he's somewhere, you know, up in northern Europe. Right. And through great pain, he, he found that he went to an ice lake, saw a fishing hole, and he, he'd lost his wife and he was in a lot of pain and he, got, he climbed into the fishing hole and uh, breathed really heavily well, there was air at the top of the hole. Yeah, there? yeah. So he kept himself out, which kills a lot of people. That sort yeah, of scenario, yeah. and and found by breathing super deeply that he could acclimatize his body to it, uh, and can and regulate his core temperature through this specific type of breathing. Oh, I don't know about that. And so then he gets out, and he yeah. feels, uh, as you would, um, super, uh, you know, good about life again. And so he goes back to this fishing hole every day, does the same thing. People think he's lost it. And he he has now, he's quite famous. I'll write his name down for you before I leave. And now he, um, he's hiked into the death zone on, on Mount Everest in nothing but a pair of shorts. He swum like great lengths under ice sheets. I've never heard of him. I'd be most interested to look him up. Yeah. And he also, believes now you know they call it um the autoimmune system he believes it's not auto he believes that it's an immune system that we actually can control through these breathing exercises and cold water therapy and so they've taken him into hospitals injected him with viruses and he's beaten them off in record times i must look that up i will i will pass it on for you anyway just while you're on the cold thing in antarctica i was like wim hof um and so also, while you were in Antarctica, it, you can't. No planes fly directly over Antarctica. Do no. You, why? Why is that? Well, it's not on the route to anywhere. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, okay. But I don't. Is it illegal, or they just don't do it? Uh, well, they just don't do it. There's no need. The only planes that go to Antarctica are those connected with the larger expeditions, such as the United States or the Soviet Union. The Chinese, they have planes that will land in Antarctica. Australia didn't when I was there. Uh, It's obviously a very expensive thing to do. Uh, And aircraft don't overfly it, apart from tourist aircraft, you know, uh, apart from that, um, because it's not on the way to anywhere. Unlike the North, the Arctic, where a lot of planes overfly the Arctic because it's the quickest way to get from the United States to Europe. Yes, and is this? Someone told me this the other day also that there's only polar bears in the Arctic and only penguins in Antarctica. That's right. That's right. There, the, the, there are no animals really at all. No mammals, anyhow, on the Antarctic continent. There are 
as you say, there are penguins and seals, but they are really in the coastal waters and on the coast of the, uh, and they disappear in the winter anyhow. Whereas, uh, and also there are there are no uh, trees. Hold on, they disappear in the winter. Well, the, the penguins, except for the emperor penguins, the other penguins all go go to sea in the winter. Do they really? Uh, the emperor penguins breed on the Antarctic coast. Uh, the seals, they leave in the winter too. So you know, it's pretty cold. Yeah. And there's there's no food, no there's there's no vegetation. Yeah. You know, the, it's the whole continent is ice. It's covered in ice, except for a little bit of coastal fringes, a bit of rock. But there are certainly there are no trees or any other uh, vegetation. And so you spent a year down there. I spent a year down there. And did you ever feel like like was loneliness a thing or? Well, you've got your mates down there. You yeah. know, you, you miss your family and friends, and you miss. Uh, in our case, there were no females down there, so you missed. Uh, you know, female yeah. company as yeah. well. Yeah. But um, you've got pretty used to your own company and the company of a few colleagues, you know. And did you have like table tennis tables? Or yeah, yeah, all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Beers, table tennis, film nights, Yeah, all that sort of thing. Film nights? Yeah, twice a week we'd have picture nights. There were a whole, whole range of, you know, the old films on reels back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we had all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, quite a... Know, an interesting social life. Yeah. Now, um, how was it for you to come back to society after a year away? I know when I've been away, different places and never done a year in isolation. It's always a, a strange oh, adjustment. Oh, there's a period of adjusting. You know, you forget. Uh, uh, <coughs> <pardon> me. <coughs> you forget a lot, a lot of the routine things uh, of uh, normal. You know, normal life in the, in the cities yeah. and in Australia. I remember uh, several days on, on, on the way back on the ship seeing the first fly I'd seen for 12 months. I thought, gee, what's that? And it's a fly, you know, because there are no flies down there. Yeah, yeah. It's a fairly healthy place, Antarctica. Yeah. No germs either. No germs. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, returning to Australia, you you know, watching the traffic and... and uh, you know, telephones and yeah. radios and all that sort of stuff that we didn't have down there. Yeah, yeah it, it, uh, it actually sounds very inviting. Yeah, look, it was an interesting year. I did enjoy it. Yeah. And so when you came back, uh, had you met your wife at this stage? I had, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I went to Sydney to uh, work at the Sydney University there for most of the rest of 1965 writing up the results of my experiments in the Antarctic. Right. So that's what I did. So it was basically a nine-to-five job rather than a hospital-type job. Now, when you said um, about being able to acclimatise to the cold, did you find that that was just a natural occurrence by spending time in the yeah, cold? Yeah, that's, that's right. You didn't like have to say to anyone, like, stay outside all night? No, 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 no. Cold exposure creates its own acclimatisation. Okay, yeah. And do you think that like that's just part of that's uh, the human body's um, uh, pretty much a miracle the way it could adapt to most? Well, it's what happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, and so, how was Sydney for you? Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Um, uh, it was an interesting year working in a sort of academic type of environment, uh, but again, uh, I didn't have any constraints like hospital work or anything, so I. Uh, tended to party on a bit <laughs> and uh, yeah, eventually uh, uh, found that I'd uh, got into quite a bit of trouble with alcohol and uh, had to do something about it. And this, this came to the forefront in Sydney? Yeah, yeah, and that's the first time I had any intervention and uh, it was in that year, 1965, that I first uh, engaged in you know the fellowships of recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous to try and alleviate, try and put into remission what I thought, what I could then see at long last was a problem that was, you know, creating all sorts of problems in my life. Yeah, yeah. And so did this, this must have come as some relief? Yes, it did. And, uh, And I noticed that when I stopped drinking, my life changed. Yeah. 
you know, I was able to form decent relationships and I was able to apply myself at work a lot better and, you know, everything in my life improved when I stopped drinking. Uh, I had to get used to it because, of course, it was not the party scene anymore, but it was, overall it was obviously it was a, of great benefit to me and uh, I persevered. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I have a similar experience and I hung my hat so heavily on the um, party scene and that's who I Yes. I thought I identified with and I thought that that's who everybody loved. Yeah. Not really the case, but it's funny how we make these things up in our head, but the yeah. adjustment is... Well, I, I actually thought I had to drink and drink a lot to have a good time. Yeah. yeah. In fact, it was not causing a good time at all. It was causing a very <laughs> bad time. <laughs> uh, well, um, that's... And, of course, in later life I look back on all that and I think to myself... There are not too many people who are alcoholic, who are alcoholics and who are drinking in an alcoholic fashion that actually enjoy being alcoholics. It's not a good life, you know. It uh, destroys so many things. But anyhow, that's where I was at at that time. Yeah, and the idea, like I think, it's sometimes when I look at people smoking, mm. I think that looks unreal. You know, I really like think that's cool. That looks fun. I wish I could just have a cigarette, but I know that when I let the wolf in the door, it's over. Oh. But the people smoking who are addicted to it, I don't think are loving them as much as we look at it as if, you know what I mean? That's right. I mean, I was a very heavy smoker until my 50s. And when I look back, there wasn't much bang for the buck, you know, the financial buck or the health buck, yeah. you know, both of which were quite serious. Uh, you don't get that much benefit out of it, do you? No. <laughs> you, no. Think, you look back and think, why does anybody do this? It's such so, so odd the things that we grab onto. That's right. Um, I mean, at least with alcohol, for most people, it gives a, you know a degree of pleasure. Yeah, but I don't see that in cigarettes. I think that there's a little pleasure in the nicotine fix. Yeah, it's pretty small. It's very small, but I will grab onto such thing. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there. There's undoubtedly it's there. Because I, I couldn't stop socially smoking recently, yeah. and mm. I. Uh, and the, my way out of that was to start doing Nickabate, mm. the, the yeah. Chewies and Tic Tacs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love them. Mm. But I've, I've since been able to get rid of those as well. Sure. But anyway, um, so you, were you aware that there was help for the hole that you were falling into before it was in front of you? Vaguely. We're looking at the 1960s and... Uh, the whole field of alcohol and drugs, you know, from a medical point of view, was embryonic. You know, nobody had done much work in that area. Um, I was concerned. I, I wouldn't have described myself as an alcoholic, but I was concerned about my drinking. And I actually approached an alcohol, the medical director of an alcoholism or an alcohol clinic in Sydney called the Langdon Clinic. It still exists. It's a, a leading centre for the uh, research and study and treatment of, of uh, addictive diseases. And I rang up the medical superintendent of the uh, Langdon Clinic and asked him for help. And it was he who helped me make my own diagnosis and uh, suggested ways in which I could uh, alleviate the problem. And I took his advice, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so after taking his advice, finding a, a clearer way through, you came back to Melbourne? Came back to Melbourne, uh, started my anaesthetic training, married the girl that uh, I was talking about before and started a family. So, you know, things were looking pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And these were all, um, like, this is uh, this was a part of your roadmap to have a family and kids. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess so, yeah. yeah. It was pretty conventional from that point of view. Yeah, and, well, this is the good... Family, uh, career, you yeah. know, that sort of stuff. And, well, this is a, sounds like a pretty good time. It was pretty good, but uh, like so many people with addictive disorders... Uh, it was not a smooth journey for me and it was punctuated by a series of relapses over the next couple of decades, long periods of sobriety with 
short periods of relapse. Uh, and now, now, can I just ask the question, when you'd have a relapse, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. would it? did you find it difficult to um, to go back or or did you just very quickly become very sick and tired of being feeling that way? Um, every time I had a relapse... Uh, Oh, the, the, every time I had a relapse, I was hospitalised. Okay. This was new. Yeah. Because originally I walked into recovery off the street. Yeah. Uh, but on the six or seven occasions that I relapsed, it all resulted in going to hospital. And uh, most clinics uh, in those days, at any rate, that I went to uh, helped one reintegrate into the recovery fellowships. Great. And I actually, my last relapse was back in uh, uh, the winter of 1992, so it's a long time ago now. Uh, but at that point, I switched fellowships. I, uh, I went from AA to NA because uh, the, the more recent relapses had involved the use of other drugs. Yeah. And by going to Narcotics Anonymous, I was able to address all of the alcohol and all the other drug issues. Yeah. And that really changed my life. Uh, I, in 1992, I really, for the first time, totally surrendered to the fact that I had this addictive disease. Uh, I was prepared to do, go to any lengths to, to put it into remission. And uh, I, I took the advice of a very wise old counsellor at my last um, uh, inpatient uh, rehab and uh, took the program very very seriously and once again changed my life and the interesting thing about that is that uh, uh, oh, by this time I, I'd already uh, undergone a divorce from my first marriage and uh, had uh, uh, remarried uh, a lady that was also in recovery Deirdre uh, and uh, we were doing our recovery together uh, I um, uh, was. I went back to anaesthesia. Mm -hmm. you know, I'd never, I'd never had my career interrupted because, fortunately, my addictions had never affected anybody in my work, and that was very, very fortunate for my patients and myself. Uh, so I resumed anaesthetics. But I also got heavily involved in um, uh, recovering, in, in, in assisting other doctors who had had addictive disorders. Uh, I had a uh, colleague, or the director of anaesthesia at Box Hill Hospital at the time, was a very compassionate gentleman, Dr John Paul, and he... Uh, He'd never had any problems himself with alcohol or other drugs, but he had had some uh, unfortunate life experiences that made tended to increase his compassion for people in the situation that I had found myself. And he had been approached by another doctor who had had an addiction problem for re-employment. And eventually, uh, over the next few years... There were about five anaesthetists at Box Hill Hospital who were in recovery from addictive disorders of one sort or another. So I was heavily involved in that, uh, in mentoring and, uh, and assisting Dr Paul uh, in the uh, maintenance of that program. Um, about eight years into recovery, in 1999, or, yeah, 1999 uh, the Victorian branch of the Australian Medical Association and the Medical Practitioners Ward of Victoria, as it was then, decided to initiate a program to help, uh, to assist uh, doctors who were suffering from uh, well, any sort of disorder, health problems, but in particular drug and alcohol. And uh, I applied for the job as medical director and I... Uh, in that application, I made it quite clear that I was an addict in recovery, alcoholic addict in recovery myself, and they appointed me to the role of medical director. And 
that was a pretty exciting six years of my life working uh, for the medical practitioners of Lord of Victoria and looking after dozens of doctors who had had alcohol or other drug addictions or disorders of, of one sort or another. And uh, in the course of that, I became uh, very close to a number of programs in the United States, physicians' health programs, uh, because it was the American doctors, in my view, that were at the cutting edge of recovery from addiction. So you've been over to America and been to meetings? Oh, many, many times, not only to meetings, but looking at uh, physicians' health programs and being mentored by doctors there that were involved in these programs. My first year, five years were spent in Los Angeles in oh, yes. recovery yeah. there. And um, it's just amazing. I find the American psychology on, you know, getting well and, and uh, to, to coming home. And it's sort of like uh, uh, not talked about too much, you know. And people, like if you tell someone in America you're in recovery, they're like very supportive. and oh, It's a yeah. great thing. And then, yeah. you know, I find it over here. Yes, there's a very profound cultural difference. Yeah. And it's a pity because, um, look, just as an example, in America, if you turn up, if, you, if you're reported to the medical board or you self-report as an alcoholic or as a drug addict, they will engage you in, and this is as a doctor, they will engage you in a very comprehensive recovery program. And part of that program, they will mandate that you go to AA or NA and that becomes a core business in terms of recovery. In Australia, I was not, not able to achieve this because the cultural links to these fellowships are nowhere near as close. In fact, they almost don't exist. Well, it's funny you say, when I first came back, from America for a visit, one of my good friends was in, um, had been admitted to a hospital here in Melbourne for her drinking. And um, when I questioned the nurses, I said, so what sort of programs do you have linked? You know, like, mm. and they said, oh no, we don't do any of that. I said, That's well, right. why not? And they're like, well, we don't talk about it actually, but, and they were trying to teach her for her third admission, how to drink like a lady. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's all of that, and it breaks my heart to see, you know, opportunities lost in terms of recovery for people with addictive disease. And uh, you know, again, the cultural difference uh, in an American country town. If you ask a cop on a street corner, uh, "Where's the nearest AA meeting?" You'll probably be able to help you, or at least you'll look look it up for you. Yeah, yeah. In Australia, ask the same question, they'll say, what's, what's AA? Oh, you know, vaguely. So, so it's, it's no, you know, there's, there's, I think a lot of it's to do with religiosity. Mm. In America, the, uh, at least most Americans give lip service to religiosity. In Australia, we're more cynical and more um, agnostic about these issues. And uh, people wrongly, in my view, conflate religiosity with the recovery of the 12-step program. Well, yeah, they get spirituality and religion mixed up. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I, I happen to be an atheist. You may have observed on my car on the way in oh, an I atheist sticker, sticker. On, the, yeah, yeah. on the back bumper bar. Yeah. So I'm a card-carrying atheist. But the 12 steps work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no hard and fast rule, right? That's right. And that's... I that, mean, I've got a higher power, but it's not a supernatural higher power. Yeah, yeah. So there you are. You know, the, it's it's about spirituality. It's not about religion. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that that's super important. That was like, stop me. That had... But mm. until I figured that out, I was like, oh my God, you're telling me and I can do what I want. I don't have to, it's not, a, you know, you have all these preconceived ideas that, that people have, people had told me that actually didn't add up to what the program's about. That's right. Mm. Um, yeah, and I feel very grateful myself to have found it. Mm. It's saved my life. That's right. It's absolutely life-saving. Um, and so I know, you know, through mutual friends that you've been able to help, I don't know, but your reach must be very wide and far with the people that you've been able to help? Well, um, 
I've tried to carry the message when I've been, and I've been lucky that I've had the opportunity to do so, not only as an ordinary member of the fellowship, but uh, through my work. Mm. And what actually happened uh, after I left the, or while I was at the Victorian Doctors' Health Program, I, I uh, uh, became uh, far more involved in the academic side of addiction. And I uh, managed to obtain my fellowship of the chapter of addiction medicine of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. So I became a fully qualified addiction medicine physician as well as an anaesthetist. And over that next few years, I gradually reduced my anaesthetic work and gradually increased my addiction medicine work. So by the time we get to about 2007 or 2008, I no longer gave anaesthetics at all, but I continued practicing addiction medicine and uh, about that time the Malvern Private Hospital decided that it wanted to become that it wanted to develop an, an addiction medicine uh, facility there so when you say addiction medicine facility yeah can you break that down for me? well a hospital or any other hospital rehab yeah that uh, specializes in the treatment of alcoholics or drug addicts. So it's a fancy word for a rehab. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Well, it could be a detox or it could be a rehab or yeah. it could be both. Yeah. And in this case, it was basically a detox because it was a 28-day program. Yeah. If people wanted long-term, we would have to, if patients wanted long-term rehabilitation, we would have to transfer them at the end of 28 days to one of the, you know, several long-term rehabs around the country. Mm-hmm. Of which there's a huge shortage. Yes, now, um, I know this doesn't get talked about very much, but a lot of people come into, um, you know, uh, with depression and various other things. And the mind and body being a self-healing organism, what's your take on, uh, you know, clinical depression, depression? And the word's thrown around very loosely these days and yeah. it, you can have, it's a very sensitive topic. Yes. And, and I just, can we talk about that? Yeah, look, uh, you, you mean in relation to addictive disease? or oh, just in relation in to your, your knowledge in the well, area. Well, I'm not a psychiatrist, that's yeah. the first thing. Uh, but in addiction medicine, the vast majority of our patients present, along with their addiction, with some form of mental health disorder, usually anxiety and... De- oh, sorry, not disorder. Some form of... Men- some range of mental health symptoms. Usually anxiety and or depression. Now, in most cases, not all, but in the majority of cases, in my experience, this anxiety and depression is caused by their addiction. And if you think about it for a minute, if you're an alcoholic, if you're a drug addict, and you're presenting for treatment, your life is in such a mess is so, so chaotic, busted relationships, loss of job, poor health, no social life, or uh, one or all of the above. Your life is such a mess that it would be surprising if you weren't depressed. It would be surprising if you weren't anxious. And so th- these symptoms of anxiety and depression in alcoholics and drug addicts We need to give people a crack at sobriety, see what they're like when they're drug-free. And if they've been drug-free for a few weeks, then we can have another look at their mental health and say, what's going on? And my experience is the vast majority are symptom-free. In other words, their anxiety and depression was caused by their drugs. There will be some patients you know, a minority, quite a few, a significant minority, say, I don't know, a fifth, a quarter, Mm -hmm. maybe even a third, Mm. who have ongoing issues with anxiety and depression, which needs treatment in its own right. Mm -hmm. Just the same way that some people have diabetes, some people have high blood pressure, some people have both, you have to treat them both, Mm -hmm. comorbidity. But mostly, if you alleviate somebody's addictive problems, their mental health is pretty much restored to normal. Uh, the same goes for psychotic illnesses. You know, some patients will present with drug-induced psychosis, sometimes quite severe, uh, and uh, uh, the cessation of drug use will, uh, 
result in the resolution of their psychotic disorder, which is, a, you know, life-changing. Yeah, well, uh, well, from my own experience, I know from teenage years, I smoked way too much weed and I developed a, yeah. a psychosis. Absolutely. And um, my mum, thankfully, said, and at the time I was suffering from depression and anxiety, and she said, he's not allowed to be medicated. He's got himself in this mess. He has to get his way out of it. And I, I'm, so, I'm very grateful, one, that life kept going. And... I was able to find my way out of the hole without the use of prescribed drugs mm-hmm. because it taught me later in years that when these symptoms showed up again, oh, I've dealt with this, I can go through it again and beat it without yeah. the help of... Sure. That was my journey. But yeah. and I don't want to say that that's right or wrong for anyone, but that was mm-hmm. my experience and I was grateful that I won that battle early. Well, that's terrific. Uh, look, my experience is that one of the well, almost a tragedy, is that there are a very, very large number of doctors out there and other health professionals that don't understand addiction. And they think that you can treat that cannabis addiction or you can treat that alcoholism with medication. And unfortunately, there is no medication that will resolve these disorders. The medication can often be helpful in treating complications. It can be helpful in treating comorbidities. But it's not, and it could certainly be helpful in detoxing people. But there is no current role for medication as a, as a cure for addiction. The only way that we can put addiction into remission is to uh, is to achieve some form of cognitive change. We need people to change the way they think. It's as, as basic as that, and that's where group therapy and Alcoholics Anonymous and similar programs come into their own and that's why they work Mm. because they initiate and they uh, uh, sustain cognitive change. Now, can you break the word cognitive down? Well, the way we think, the way way people think. On a core level. Yes. Yeah. 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 The way they think about themselves and the way they think about the outside world. Yeah. Yeah, how you talk to yourself, that's uh, unbelievable. And there are spiritual concepts involved in this too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which in this realm uh, and talking on a spiritual level, I I love, you know, like I used to take a lot of drugs and alcohol to really try and expand my mind deep into space, you know. But you can do that without it and it's just as fun. That's right. Like, of course. The universe is mind-boggling without it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the fact that we're sitting here opposite each other having this conversation mm. is a mind bend unto itself on this ball in the middle of the universe. Yeah, yeah. I never thought that that was uh, such a rich and beautiful thing when I was, you know. Well, that's right. Me too. When I was engaged, in, when I was actively involved in addiction, when I was a practising addict, in other words... I couldn't imagine any fun in life without some sort of chemical <laughs> assistance. But in fact, the reverse is true, and I wouldn't want to go back to that chemical dependency life for you know for anything. All the tea but in China. For all the tea in China. But uh, having said that, I am mindful that recovery is an ongoing process, and if I drop the ball and my thinking reverts to its thinking of the old days then uh, I could relapse quite readily and relapse especially at my age would be you know a very bad thing indeed and um, and so today are you still practicing um, a a anesthesiology oh no no I retired from that 15 or so years ago but I still practice addiction medicine yeah I still enjoy it I have a relatively small practice i'm only part-time i work about two days a week i mean i turned 80 last month so um, birthday uh, looking great thank you (laughs) uh so i wouldn't want to be working full-time i've got grandchildren and hobbies and all that sort of thing but i do enjoy my two days a week that i practice addiction medicine and i love it if i can help if i can help uh, uh, even one of my clients achieve recovery from this rotten stinking disease then that gives me enormous pleasure. That's uh, it's so nice to hear. And it's such a uh, fulfilling 
uh, you know, like makes life on earth more rich, right? I think so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, Dr. Jack, I want to say thank you so much for having a chat to me. That's a great pleasure. Yeah. At any time. I'm well, always happy to help. Yeah, great. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much, John. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with Dr. Jack. Wherever you are in the world, I hope this finds you faring well. Um, look, I know it's a it's a really for a lot of people this is a very confronting topic, uh, you know, um, and it is. But it's it's in you know like look, Dr. Jack said it really well that ninety percent of society don't have a problem, they just don't you know, and people can enjoy whatever level they they choose to indulge in. And I wish that I was part of that 90% myself, but it's just life's easier for me when I admit to myself I'm part of the 10% that just can't do it and and do it safely and, and the wheels inevitably always fall off for me. So, look, it, I think it's important to shine some light on this topic because we all know people, I know that we all know people who have suffered whether it's generations above or below, um, you know, it's just, I, I think the more that we can shine some light on this and make it not a uh, hidden stigma, you know, and that there are uh, life not so bad without it. Like, it's actually fucking great. Um, but I understand if you're in that 90%, that's not going to make any sense because, like, what the fuck? Who, who doesn't want to knock the top off a of frothy on a Friday night when you don't have a problem? Fucking power to you. Anyway, um, whoever you are out there in the wide world, I hope you're smiling and um, thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Adios.